Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther. And today we have a very special guest, different than our, well, I can't even say different than our normal guest because we've been going pretty far afield lately. So today we have Major General Retired Brad Garricky. In his last job, he was the Army's G-35. But I, you know, I met him and we were talking nukes because he was one of the few folks in the Army who understood just how important nuclear weapons were to the Army and to the potential conflicts that the service may fight in the future. Let me also add that Brad is not only Major General, but at the end of his name, he puts Ph.D. because he's also one of the brightest officers the the Army had. So with that, General Garricky, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Adam. Overly kind uh, and generous as <laughs> usual, but a uh, pleasure, an absolute pleasure to be here uh, with you this morning. So the the reason that, you know, I always enjoyed working with you is because, you know, you obviously knew how important nuclear weapons were to the future fight. And it was something that, by and large, the Army, as, as you know, the service that didn't have nuclear weapons, didn't really think much about. But it, of course, is a service that has a very strong tradition of, you know, the Manhattan Project was an Army project. You know, much of the Cold War, the Army had, you know, a substantial arsenal and, and an arsenal that was the most likely to get used in actual conflict. And then the, the Cold War came, the Army got rid of all of its nukes and said, geez, we get to go back to the, the kind of fights we like. But we now face an adversary in the Russians and then potentially the Chinese where the army is not going to be able to say we're just going to fight our preferred conventional fight. How do you see the army interacting or playing a major role on a battlefield where nuclear weapons are involved? What does that look like? What does the army need to be thinking about? Yeah, Adam. So I have... I've worked through um, a logic that I am afraid that our adversaries uh, may be adopting something similar. And that's the concern that drives me um, to, to promote in the Army more awareness to ultimately lead to readiness. And my, my logic kind of goes like this. In May of 1945, um, the Allies encircled Berlin and then the Soviets eliminated the Nazi regime door by door, room by room uh, in the conventional way. And that is the way wars, if you wanted to compel an adversary, you literally dug him out of the ground and, uh, and, and eliminated resistance uh, at the point of the bayonet, very traditional. And then you go forward in that same summer of 1945 to August, and the allied forces in the Pacific were facing a similar um, end of the war. They settled on a casualty estimate on the Allied side of something like a million. 
and then there would be several million uh, Japanese civilian and military casualties. And by every standard measure, the Japanese um, armed forces were, were defeated, except the Japanese were not willing to admit that. They were not compelled. And so the Allies employed a nuclear weapon. And the effect of that was to bring the casualty figures on the Allied side uh, from a million right down to essentially zero. Uh, and it, as terrible as it was, and I'm certainly, this is not an advocacy for the use of nuclear weapons, but in the cold logic of how do you win a war, uh, it was even, you even killed fewer Japanese than would otherwise have occurred. Now, we could wish that we were in a, a world in which nuclear weapons didn't exist, and they are extraordinarily powerful, especially at the higher yields, and they can, and they can destroy societies in their entirety. But if you break it down into a lower yield, a battlefield type of a weapon uh, that could be used along with conventional maneuver, then you begin to see a tool that I'm afraid is going to look very interesting to our adversaries. And that became evident in August of 1945, that there's a way to escalate. There's a way to go high, to go quick and to achieve battlefield effects. Now there's two outcomes of August, 1945. One is that it's hard to imagine compelling a nuclear armed state short of the use of a nuclear weapon. But also in a regional sense, I think we live now in an era of what I call limited total war in which nuclear states will not want to fight over existential questions and they will have their contests over regional, if you will, or sub-state sub contests. So Ukraine is an example, potentially Taiwan is an example. South China Sea. I mean, there are places where great powers are exerting their influence that could come to a kinetic solution in which a battlefield 10 kiloton, 7 kiloton, 5 kiloton weapon becomes a compelling, uh, an attractive option for an adversary. And I feel like that's the world that we live in and that our adversaries eventually will take that quick solution, climb the escalation ladder and put us at a disadvantage. Yeah, you, you bring up a great point, and, and I'll have to be honest, you know, I spent most of my career as a Department of the Air Force civil servant, so I, I thought primarily about strategic nuclear conflict, and then when I came to SAMS and had to transition from being an Air Force guy to an Army guy, and I started thinking, I went to TNOC out at Defense Nuclear Weapons School and really focused on the employment of weapons what are your minimum safe distances? Where can troops be employed? And once you do that and you start doing the calculations and you run the data and you see just how usable low and ultra low yield weapons actually are. And, and then you see, well, you know, if, if I make this an air burst and I put it at a fallout free height of burst, I can still destroy, you know, hardened concrete facilities. I can do demonstrate. I can do a lot of stuff with these lower yield weapons that make them effective without creating these, you know, uh, these heavily irradiated zones that we traditionally think of. And this is something that I don't think many Americans think about, but it's probably something, as you clearly pointed out, that the army definitely needs to think about because they very well may fight on that battlefield potentially in, you know, in NATO somewhere. 
do you think that the army has been giving sufficient thought to this? Are you sort of in your time on the staff at the Pentagon, were, were you sort of leading the charge or is there, is USANCA sort of this small repository of, you know, Yodas? I mean, where are we in terms of thinking about it? We're moving in the right direction. Uh, we're not moving with the urgency that I believe is necessary to get ready for this threat. The, the enemy I believe has a tool as you described it. And while I, we all worry and, and are even fearful of a global intercontinental exchange of missiles. That, I believe, is not the immediate threat. I believe the threat is a battlefield theater employment of this class of weapons. Because you can restore, in fact, maneuver after the use of this kind of a weapon. You can seal off a flank, right? There are ways in which, you know, airbursts, as you mentioned, in which you can free up maneuver space to allow your forces to gain ground or seize an objective in ways that are just too difficult to attrit by conventional uh, means. So it allows you to mass is what it allows you to do to free up maneuver space. And I believe this will be appealing to an adversary who doesn't want a long drawn out contest. It's, a, it's amazing that in Ukraine, um, it looked, you know, even with all the UASs and all the latest sensors and the communications technology, it looks like World War One. It looks exactly like World War One. Why is that? Because we've lost the both sides there have lost the ability to maneuver, which was the problem from 1914 to 1917. So we have the same problem in Ukraine. So if you want to avoid that morass, a battlefield employment of a nuclear weapon, I believe, is attractive in the army and in all the services. Uh, we exaggerate the death and destruction and harm, and thus we minimize in our minds the likelihood of its employment. And that allows us to keep that skeleton in the closet, as it were, to avoid the conversation. Um, I, you know, senior leaders confront me with the response is something along the lines of, well, if we go to nuclear weapons, that's another whole thing. So let's not, you know, let's not invest in trying to, to be ready for that. Or that's somebody else's problem because the army is a non-nuclear armed force and that, you know, that belongs to STRATCOM or that belongs to the Air Force or that belongs to the Navy. As the land force who has to operate on a battlefield that could be contaminated in which an adversary is seeking to exploit the effects of a nuclear strike or, or a limited, you know, atomic mine or that kind of thing. Uh, I think it is absolutely in the Army's business in terms of medical care, evacuation, and then the restoration of, of maneuver. And so... So the army has a huge role to play. And the secular arguments, as we make this case with USANCA, with experts in, in, such as yourself and, and your organization, I've not ever heard a logical counter argument that, that people make to say, hey, this is no threat at all. Uh, but they don't feel the urgency. They're not theological about it. They're not passionate about it to make the investments to begin to ready uh, the force in, in the ways that I believe are necessary. Yeah, and, and my fear is that by virtue of sort of this, you know, head in the sand approach, that if, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for kind of approach, that uh, we, we make it only more likely because we, we make it 
more attractive to the Russians to say, hey, listen, the Americans, they really don't have the capability. They, they can't match us. They can't out escalate us, you know, on a battlefield. Um, and then the other argument I hear is, well, what we're going to do is we're going to build really excellent, you know, conventional strike, precision strike. That way we can do the same thing, but with conventional weapons. And it seems to be completely ignorant of the fact that the Russians and the Chinese see those exquisite conventional capabilities as far more likely to be used. And so therefore are far more dangerous and frightening to them. Whereas nuclear weapons, they, they, they sort of understand those things are held in reserve. And I don't know how to convince folks that they're actually playing a very dangerous game. Right. So my professional advice has always been the more ready the army is across the spectrum of conflict, especially here at the operational, high operational end. The more ready we are, the more options I provide to policymakers and the more space I can create for them, that hopefully they will, they can avoid. I mean, the, the goal here is to win the military competition, deter the adversary and not come to this. And I believe the best way to do that is readiness. And the Army, of course, we don't have in this current age, and I'm not, I'm not promoting or advocating that the Army return to the, you know, the Cold War period when we had our own nuclear weapons. I believe the joint force should have them at, at scale. But the army can still contribute to readiness and must contribute to readiness through resiliency, through the ability to operate in this environment, through the ability to evacuate casualties, uh, to enable joint force maneuver, and then to use our conventional strike, which I agree. I think conventional strike, we have not thought through, and this is starting to get into a little bit of a different subject, but we have not thought through the implications of long-range conventional strike, hypersonics, and those classes of weapons, and how they may look to an adversary, and what kinds of targets do we really think are going to be most uh, uh, susceptible um, to that kind of uh, weaponry. So there, there, are, there are interconnected pieces here in terms of our offensive capabilities that we have not thought through either. Uh, and we lack an operational analysis, really, I think, of how you have to win um, at the at the campaign echelon. Well, let me push back on you. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we take our break, I want to give you a chance to think about this. So my premise is, you know, I, I was doing some research on INF and was at the Reagan Library and just going through all of the debates in the White House. And Reagan, you know, he, he wanted to eliminate these intermediate medium short range weapons and so he built up to force the soviets to then back down and give up and you know you had glickham and you know pershing too which scared the hell out of the soviets and i wonder if it's not time for the army to be a nuclear force again with you know glickham was an air force weapon pershing was an army weapon maybe it's time for pershing three in europe and asia um, and then from that, you then have a position where you could potentially, you know, renegotiate with the Russians or the Chinese on these weapons or improve deterrence. And I also wonder that if the army had the weapons, it would therefore be forced to think about nuclear war fighting and think about 
just exactly what this means. So we'll take a quick break. We're talking to Major General Retired Brad Gerke, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. You're listening to Nuclecast, and we're back. And right just before the break, I, I gave General Gerke a, a pretty challenging question, I think. But now that now that we're back, it's uh, it's his turn to tell me why I'm wrong, or agree, or take a different approach. Yeah, I would. I will push. I will in return. I'll reply with two facts <laughs> to you, and. Not that I'm sympathetic and believe that should be examined because I do, but here's the institutional reasons I I have not to date made the argument uh, that you're proposing. The first is that the Army has a lot of work to do to understand nuclear weapons. So there's our nuclear IQ, our cultural awareness, our institutional adaptations that are necessary in the training and the manning realm, uh, not to mention the equipping and hardening realms. Are, are so inadequate that um, that is where I think I want to, and that's where I've always tried to focus army leaders. It's also the things that we've been proposing at USANCA and at the G35 while I was on active duty don't cost a lot of money. So there are choices that senior leaders could make today to start improving readiness. A year from now, if they, if they did these things a year from now, two years from now, we would be in much better shape and the costs are minimal. When you start talking about acquiring weapons of an entirely new class, then you get into expenses, not just money, but it, but manning and organizational design. So as, as is well known, the Army is having some challenges recruiting. So if we're, if we're an Army in the vicinity of 450,000 troops, uh, and there's a, there's a lot of demands on the force for new types of skills. We just had a brief uh, uh, mention here of long-range strike. So long range strike, those batteries are not the same as a TOAD 105. So you're gonna have all new types of mechanics, all new types of support systems, all new types of chains of command, new sensors, right? New, new uh, command and control. Uh, we've got cyber, we've got linkages with space, uh, unmanned aerial systems, though you know we probably need more of those. So there's a range of, of specialties that the army requires at a time in which the end strength uh, is shrinking. And there is pressure already. How much can I take away from my basic combat arms or my extant functional areas to give to these new capabilities and these new functions? So there's real personnel pressure inside the Army to figure out what is the optimal design for future war. And I'm afraid that if we introduced another entire class of weapons, uh, it would just become so difficult that the Army would just, we would study it forever and not get there. So my approach has been the two-step Let's get ready to operate. Let's be able to medically evacuate. Let's improve resiliency. Let's improve training. And then we can have a conversation with the joint force about the distribution of these weapons across the services. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Well, let me ask you, as you think about 
the fight in the Pacific. And, and this is one where I think the army's probably without question more impacted than any other service as you know, sort of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was almost a gift to the army that would sort of keep us from shifting to Asia more. And that fight in Asia, which I think many folks seem as somewhat inevitable, which hopefully not, but it's the prevailing view is one in which it seems the army will do a lot of air defense. will try to provide long range fires, but some of the larger components of some of the larger combat arms of the army, I'm not sure have a major role in the Asia Pacific. How, how do you see that potential fight shaping, influencing the army and what it does and doesn't do? I think that the uh, conflict in the Pacific, I think the threat of conflict in the Pacific is certainly rising. Um, And I believe the army is going to play a decisive role. Now, the army has kind of settled upon um, a formula similar to what you're describing, where we're going to enable joint joint maneuver and joint operations. I see it as far more decisive. And I think our history, the army has more campaign streamers in the Asia Pacific than any other theater than North America. And we have been in the Pacific, right, since the the Boxer Rebellion, the Philippine Insurrection, uh, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, and we're there today. So for for a region of the world that's vast, of course, um, in which, you know, we say there's not going to be a lot of ground fighting, there sure have been a lot of ground forces assigned uh, and in combat in that part of the world. And so when you start thinking about interior lines was the idea that General Flynn and Usurpak has out there to complicate adversary decision-making through positioning strike around the, around the region to the south and to the west, um, and, and as well as to the northeast with our treaty allies in Korea and Japan. You think about the Korean Peninsula, uh, you think about uh, all the sensors that have to be protected, you think about the other critical assets with our allies that have to be defended. It ends up looking like a lot of ground forces are in play uh, and will be struck and will be asked to strike back. And at the end of the day, again, going back to 1945, if you want to compel an adversary, whether that's a regional objective or that is a state objective, you're going to have to put boots on the ground. And uh, I will tell you, being the senior planner uh, in the Joint Force as well as in the Army, um, our plans typically end with boots on the ground. (laughs) uh, And that's because that's the only way you can guarantee Uh, success. So I think we undersell the role of land power in the Pacific uh, and because of the way the department is structured. And I believe the Army has a tremendous role to play and the opportunity for the employment of nuclear weapons there, um, you know, at at altitude, uh, off axis, if you will, S-pod, A-pod, beaches. I mean, there's just Atolls, there's just, uh, there is a variety of top of uh, targets. Some of them are not highly populated, which in fact makes them, I think, a little more desirable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think the opportunity for land power in the Pacific, and General Flynn is working, giving training guidance. I think he's leading the uh, Army and the Joint Force in many ways um, to ready the force out there, more medical training, more war games about evacuation of contaminated, uh, uh, wounded, and remains. So there's a lot going on in the training realm or starting to go on in the training realm out there. And Europe is doing doing it as well. Um, but in the Pacific, I think 
I think land war, war in the Pacific is land war. And I think war in the Pacific has a significant threat of a nuclear escalation at the, at the battlefield campaign echelon. Do you think we have the capabilities to move soldiers around the Pacific to fight? Because you, you do make a good point that there's a lot of, there's a lot of landmass and, you know, choking off the Chinese by making it virtually impossible to move through straits and narrows and things of that nature, you know, that that's seems highly desirable and certainly something the army would be good at. Do you think we can move folks? I think that is a huge challenge. I think you have to orient the posture of the force and orient the force now to win the first battle. I think if, you know, if you don't win the first battle, then you fight a long war, which is worse. So is it expensive to move forces, to posture forces today in ways that are acceptable to our allies and partners around the region? It is expensive. It is it is fraught with some assumptions about access in times of crisis and conflict. To me, those are risks that are well worth investing in and, and underwriting because if we're out of position for the first battle, then it becomes prohibitive to win. And that's what, you know, if you look at the few times we've lost a campaign, the army has not lost many. We lose battles sometimes. We don't lose campaigns. 1942 in the Pacific was one where we lost the campaign. We didn't have strike. We had isolated forces, insufficient forces, and we, it, we had to fight our way all the way back uh, to get to Japan in 1945. We don't want to be in a position like that today. So moving our forces, long-range strike, putting them in the right places, putting in um, forward stockages of different classes of supply that are acceptable to our allies and partners is the way, again, I believe, to ready ourselves for the first fight. And, and again, I think our adversary realizes the time distance factors also. And so a nuclear strike at the battlefield echelon becomes more attractive because they can punch hard and early and leave us with a fait accompli. If they go high up the escalation ladder and they do that, a five kiloton strike on an S-pod or an A-pod, uh, then what, are, what is our counter move? Do we go for a two-year war? Is that really what we want to sign up for? So it becomes very difficult. Um, if you concede that space to the adversary and can't strike back um, with with any kind of uh, either long range strike because you're out of position or you don't have the fighter range, it takes time to get the naval task forces in place and all that. You got to have those postured forward, I believe, to deny the adversary that first battle advantage. So if I were to, as I have become, it's my normal custom these days, is to share my genie with the guests on the show and let them make three wishes. And of course, I'm curious what your three wishes might be. My first wish is for globally integrated plans. And people who know me are laughing about that because that was my, that was my thing back in the day. And under Chairman Dunford and General McKenzie and General Clark, we had a period for about a year and a half or two years in which we were building global plans against chief adversaries. So our, the Department of Defense is regionally organized. The Secretary of Defense and the President has a commander in each region of the world that, that they, you know, they give orders to and consult with about the threat in that region. And everybody wants to integrate. Everybody understands philosophically the need to integrate. But integration at the planning echelon 
is to date is is immature and insufficient. We have we have combatant commands and services that have symbiotic relationships with each other. Um, the plan supports the budget and the service. The service budget supports the plan, and everybody's generally satisfied with that. It just means though that war fighting is is difficult and preparing to actually war fight is is problematic. So with, wish number one, we need genuine globally integrated war plans from conception. And even with allies and partners, frankly, they should be involved in the planning process. And that's doable, doesn't cost a thing. One year from today, we could have global plans for the main adversaries and they would be, they would be sufficient to get us started. It's not that hard to do, but the interest, the status quo just continues to, to push us back on that. The second thing I would ask, I would ask the army to get busy on training. Uh, and I would get, get busy on every CTC rotation should have a uh, nuke chem uh, component to it. We should have a series of war games. We should conduct an operational gaps analysis that tells us what do I need to maneuver at the operational echelon and fight with UAS, long range strike, the threat of nuclear contamination, as well as, as a chemical, limit chemical strike, et cetera. Those gaps, we would find new gaps that we're not tracking right now in our modernization program which I believe is overly tactical and system specific, and it's not sufficiently integrated. So that's how I would like, like to see that happen. And then I just want to raise our nuclear IQ. I've been in war games, high level war games, four star sponsored war games, in which participants cried. I have never in my life seen someone cry until in recent years uh, it, it, because of the, the employment of nuclear weapons. That is how fraught socially, morally, Right, just the shock of it um, that nuclear weapons are uh, in, inside of our defense institutions. So we've got a lot of education to do uh, to help people understand what is possible, what is the risk, uh, and what are the capabilities we could uh, develop to mitigate those. So nuclear IQ would be my battlefield. Nuclear IQ would be my third wish. And thanks, uh, Mr. Gene. I appreciate that. I like. I like. Look forward to seeing that happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, I mean, those are actually three great wishes and it's, uh, all wishes that I think many of the listeners would say, yeah, right on. So some good wishes. Now, if you were to leave the listeners with sort of, uh, the takeaway to remember six months from now about the army and nuclear, what, what would that takeaway be? Do not underestimate the resolve and the creativity of our adversaries. Um, we, you know, are generally a peace-loving people, and we don't want war, um, but we are a great, long-standing status quo power. And others are not. And others who seek to uh, achieve the status and the influence we have will be willing to do things that we believe are certainly undesirable or even unthinkable. And so if we, if we continue to underestimate and not to prepare, then you get the, the worst outcome. The outcome we don't want is the one that happens. I believe that, I believe it is a high, high probability that an adversary will use a battlefield nuclear weapon uh, in my lifetime, certainly in the lifetime of, of a new lieutenant who's coming under the force. I, I believe, I tell people to write it down, it's gonna happen um, because the logic is gonna drive an adversary to that outcome. And so I would leave the audience with, if, if think about that, and then think about the measures we can take to improve our capabilities and readiness, 
um, that ultimately then proved me wrong. All right. Major General Retired Brad Garricky, thanks for coming on Nuclecast. Thank you. This is a real pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, it was a great show. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we will see you next time on Nuclecast. Okay, so afterthoughts from talking to Brad Garricky. The number one thing that came to mind, deep thinker. He has really thought about these bigger, broader issues and how the Army might have to face a nuclear battlefield. How do we plan? How do we train? Where are we? Where do we need to go? Uh, so it was it was great. And, you know, he he happens to be really good as a public speaker. So that was helpful. So it was a it was a great show. I mean, we've never really talked about how the army would have to fight through nuclear conflict and, you know, just what its role might be in, you know, an Asia Pacific fight. And so it was good to hear that, you know, from General Garricky. And so I, I don't know about you, but I thought it was a great show. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 